If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1946, Churchill declared that from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. But what exactly did that rhetorical border look like during the Cold War? And what's happening along it today? Well, in his new book, The Curtain and the Wall, Timothy Phillips has written about his experience travelling the length of the border between East and West, exploring the borderlands where a clash of ideologies was at its most intense. David Musgrove spoke to him to find out more. Today I am joined by Timothy Phillips, whose book The Curtain and the Wall, A Modern Journey Along Europe's Cold War Border, is published now. It's a great book, really interesting read. So, Timothy, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Really nice to be here. Great. Okay, so the title of the book, as I said, uh, The Curtain and the Wall, we're talking about the Iron Curtain. What was the Iron Curtain? Yeah, so we're talking about the Iron Curtain and the Berlin Wall. That's the curtain and the wall. Um, The Iron Curtain was, uh, I guess, a fundamental divide that ran down the middle of Europe from north to south between 1945, 1946, 
1989 through to 1991 in some places. Typically, people say that it ran from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, and that's because of a very uh, famous speech that Winston Churchill gave shortly after he stopped being prime minister at the end of the war, where he said an Iron Curtain had descended between those two places. Really, the Iron Curtain was where two sets of armies met at the end of the Second World War. They had defeated Hitler and the Nazi regime together as allies, the Soviet Red Army and the American, British and other allied forces coming from the West. And they met in Germany and in other places in Europe, and they agreed a line of control where the Soviets would have jurisdiction on the eastern side and the Americans, the British and the French and others would have jurisdiction on the western side. Very quickly after the war, the Soviets and the others fell out. The Soviets started to impose the kind of society and political system that they had had in Russia and other parts of the Soviet Union since 1917. And gradually over time, the capitalist democratic West and uh, the Soviet uh, socialist East erected a border which was meant to be impassable which was heavily militarised in many places and which was widely thought to be the most likely starting point for the next global conflict. Worth saying that one of the points of my book is to um, reframe where that border started and ended. I think it's important to say it started far to the north of the German Baltic coast, right at the top of Norway, where it touched the Soviet Union, and it ended far to the south. In, In my book, I say it ended... Um, where Turkey and Azerbaijan met. Turkey was in NATO, as was Norway, uh, and Azerbaijan was one of the constituent republics of the Soviet Union. Okay, we will come back to the geographical point in just a second, but one thing I just wanted to clarify. So the title of the book, The Curtain and the Wall, you mentioned there's also the Berlin Wall. Where does the Berlin Wall fit in the Iron Curtain? Yeah, so Berlin was literally an outlier, The Allies, Berlin was so important in the fight against Nazi Germany, obviously as the capital, that when the Allies met and agreed how they would divide up Europe when they won, they treated Berlin separately. And so the rest of Germany was divided into four areas uh, to be controlled by the Soviet Union, Britain, America and France. And then Berlin also was divided into four sectors controlled by those four countries. But Berlin, in its entirety, was surrounded by the Soviet sector of Germany. And so once they all fell out, the British, French and American sectors of Berlin, which became West Berlin, ended up marooned. They were an island of the capitalist democratic West, surrounded entirely by the Soviet-controlled East Germany. Excellent. Well, I think hopefully that's uh, clarified it for everybody. I'm sure most of our listeners uh, knew most of that, but uh, always good to be reminded. Uh, and just in terms of, of the naming, um, you mentioned that Churchill uh, did that famous speech. Did he actually coin the phrase the Iron Curtain or did that come from somewhere else? Well, the Iron Curtain is the thing that comes down at the interval in a theatre or in some theatres it comes up. And the reason for Iron Curtains developing in theatre was that often there were lots of pyrotechnics Um, in theatres and lots of theatres had burned down because of this and so the Iron Curtain was supposed to protect what was backstage from what was in front of the stage. So the metaphor was used a little bit to describe divisions between groups of people 
in the 1920s and 30s. And then it was actually first used to describe what might happen in Europe when the communist East and the capitalist West met by Joseph Goebbels in a letter or a diary entry. I can't quite remember. Churchill wasn't aware of that. And he seems to have hit upon the phrase himself and, and used it in that Fulton, Missouri speech. And was there, you mentioned sort of the, the geographical limits of, of the Iron Curtain, as you talk about it, uh, go far beyond the Stettin-Trieste um, uh, line of reference that he mentioned. Was there was there any particular reason why he chose to talk about Stettin and Trieste, do you think? It's a really good question, because w- w- what we should also talk about is that it never ran through Stettin. And just, just remind us where Stettin is. So Stettin, Szczecin, as it's called now, is a Polish city now, but it was a German city, and it's right on the border of today's Poland and Germany, very close to the border. Churchill probably said Stettin deliberately because he didn't want to believe or give the impression at that point that the Soviet sector of Germany would be permanently separated from the rest of Germany. At that point, East Germany as a state hadn't formally come into existence. But in reality, once the Iron Curtain settled down, you had this long inner German border for many people, the most famous part of the Iron Curtain, which means that the Iron Curtain actually terminated in the Baltic Sea, several hundred kilometres to the west of Stettin, near the city of Lübeck. So the premise of your book, it's a travel book in a way, as well as a history book, you're traversing the route of the Iron Curtain, you're trying to follow where it went. So just tell us, where did you start and where did you finish? I mean, you've mentioned that a bit, but but let's let's go back to that. Yeah, no, so I, I left my home in London, flew to Oslo in the spring of 2019, and then took a flight from Oslo right to the top of Norway, as far away from Oslo as Rome is from Oslo, so Norway, a very, very long country, to a place called Kirkenes, which is a tiny town, but the largest settlement in that part of Norway for hundreds of miles. And I based myself there for a few days and hired a little car, uh, worryingly small, I realised, once I got onto the snowy, icy roads. And I drove for another 50 kilometres or so until I got to the Barents Sea at a place called Grenze Jakobselv, which means uh, the border on the Jakobselva River. And I stood by the quite uh, chilly waters and looked across a very narrow river into Russia over the top of a barbed wire fence, which still runs there. Not a high barbed wire fence, uh, not a very fearsome fence because there's hardly anybody there to deter from escaping in Cold War times. But I was told by locals the same fence that had run there throughout the Cold War with watchtowers all around and listening stations and things, but otherwise unspoilt, untouched countryside with rocks um, descending into the sea. As you said, you did this journey in 2019, and obviously quite a lot has happened since then in terms of global geopolitics, um, which which might change sort of the, the way that the, the journey would happen if you tried to do it again today. You went south from there. Could you very quickly sketch the, the route that you go and the countries that you pass through? First of all, I kind of stuck close to the Russian border with other European countries. So I went from Norway to Finland and then to one of the Baltic states, Latvia. Then I spent some time in the Baltic in what you could call the Maritime Iron Curtain. So I went to the Swedish island of Gotland and the Danish island of Bornholm, um, both of which are quite far to the east of the main parts of those countries. And they were the kind of outposts of the West in the Baltic, facing across to the Soviet um, Union and down to Poland and East Germany. Then I sailed 
to East Germany and made my way to that border at Lübeck that I describe, worked my way along the inner German border to Berlin and then south to the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria and Vienna, um, which interestingly was divided into sectors in exactly the same way as Berlin. Not a lot of people remember that now. And then to Hungary and then down into the former Yugoslavia to Slovenia, um, across to Italy, Again, another place that I don't think I would have immediately thought had an Iron Curtain border. Then to the peculiar, unique uh, place of Albania, and then over to Greece, up to North Macedonia briefly, and then finally a big long journey across Turkey to the far east of Turkey and into Nakhichevan, which is an exclave of Azerbaijan. So it's a bit of Azerbaijan that isn't joined to the rest of Azerbaijan, but that is the last Iron Curtain uh, frontier um, in my reading of where the Iron Curtain re- ran in Europe. Well, well remembered. It's quite a, quite a journey, <laughs> isn't it? it was, how, how, how many miles is that? It's, it's, it's a long way, right? Yeah, it's a 5,000 kilometre journey kind of on the map. I didn't add up exactly. I know I, I walked for over a 1,000 miles during the journey, but mostly I was on transport and uh, varying kinds, trains, buses, bicycles occasionally, planes. I think I travelled, if you count up all the miles, I think I travelled about thirteen or 14,000 kilometres while I was journeying. Wow, okay. So uh, quite a tough journey, I imagine. Um, perhaps, I, I guess as we chat, maybe we'll find a little bit about, about the, sort of the, the difficulties of attempting that sort of journey. But, but I wonder if you might be able to give us a sense about the actual physical manifestation of the Iron Curtain. I think when people think about it, when they think about the Berlin Wall, there's obviously some very famous images of of, uh, of gates, watchtowers, barbed wire, and things like that. How uniform, if at all, was the boundary across that enormous length of wall that you've just described? It was not uniform. It was not uniform uh, across the length of the European continent, and also it was not uniform across the decades of the Cold War. The most kind of infamous manifestation, I suppose, is the Berlin Wall. Solid concrete, a death zone, various booby traps to prevent you even getting close to the wall, um, and lots of uh, personnel uh, deployed constantly to spot anyone who was about to try. There were actually several mini Berlins along the inner German border, so other villages um, which happened to straddle the border or were too close to the border and ended up with a Berlin-style wall running through them, really ridiculously, in one case skirting the edge of a duck pond. The kind of the, the, the next tier down was also in Germany. Germany was always a place of great fear for those in the East who mostly built these fortifications because the people on either side spoke the same language. So there was an additional draw in terms of the feasibility of escaping and making a new life on the other side. Mostly there, you're looking at really dense uh, stainless steel mesh fencing from the 1960s onwards. And again, a death strip, self-firing devices, which would shoot shrapnel into your body if you triggered them when you touched the fence, um, and lots of watchtowers. However, as I said, if you go up to the top of uh, Norway, where Norway and the Soviet Union met, it was a kind of barbed wire fence that you might see um, Uh, in a field to stop cows going from one property to another. There were also lots of checkpoints and there were missile silos, particularly along the Soviet Baltic coast. So there was a kind of early warning system there, which was supposed to deploy missiles, not nuclear, but missiles to prevent a conventional attack by sea. 
when you get down to the very end of the journey in Nikitjivan, as you travel out of Azerbaijan back into Turkey, what you see is that that's where a kind of two sets of geopolitics meet, um, because you also have the Azerbaijani and Turkish borders with Iran, which was not an easy border either. And so one set of um, barbed wire fences suddenly gives way to another as you're funneled towards the checkpoint at the very narrow tip of Nikitjivan into Turkey. So a wide range of differences and some like truly horrendous and scary places uh, of, along that border and some more bucolic, pleasant places, I suppose. And, and some uh, and some very surprising bits. Tell us about the, the nudist beach on the side of the... <laughs> yeah, of the so I mentioned Lübeck um, and Lübeck is the West German city that lay closest to the inner German border, to the Iron Curtain. Lübeck has a famous holiday resort, seaside resort called Travemünde, which is famous for Thomas Mann living there and um, for being a kind of big draw for German tourists. In the 1970s, some nudists in Travemünde were lobbying to get a stretch of the beach that would permanently be a nudist beach. And the local council, being prudish, uh, didn't want to put a slap bang in between all the other beaches where clothed people, or textiles as they're known in German nudist culture, would be passing back and forward. So instead, they allotted a stretch of sand right beside the Iron Curtain. So basically, you walked as far along the beach as you could on the Preval Peninsula, and then suddenly the nudist beach starts, and where it ends is the enormous fundamental mesh um, stainless steel fence of the East Germans with a watchtower immediately alongside. So from 1975, West German nudists um, were overlooked, not so much by other West Germans, but by East Germans in a control tower. Now, an interesting kind of paradox of this, which we think the West German authorities weren't really aware of, is that nudism was far more popular in East Germany than it was in West Germany and and far less frowned upon, which is perhaps one of the most strange facts, I think, about East Germany that I learned in the trip, because you don't associate that culture more generally with kind of a free attitude towards how people behave. But um, because East German government wouldn't allow there to be nudist clubs because you couldn't have any clubs that weren't socialist or linked somehow to the party. Basically, they kind of uh, decentralised nudism and people just took to taking their clothes off when they were on any beach. So there is a famous, infamous story of the people in the watchtower one day finding a sense of humour, which was very unusual, and coming out of the watchtower and stripping off and having a skinny dip themselves while the West German nudists looked on from across the fence. Curious. So, and, your, and your book is full of curious stories like that as well. I, I wonder, you mentioned that um, the nature of the structure um, it changes geographically, but also chronologically. How This is a, a like a 40-year 40, 40 period or so they were talking of, of this boundary being an operation. Are there moments when it is much more permeable and much more impermeable? And how does the, the, the physical structure change according to that? With the exception of Yugoslavia, which I'll come on to in a second, the border mostly gets stronger. People tend to want to leave the East in greater numbers than people want to flee from the West to the East. There were always some people who moved in that direction. And over time, governments in the East became determined to prevent this. That was both because it was embarrassing, but also there was an economic factor. The people who tended to want to leave were younger people, better educated people, and so they were hemorrhaging talent out of their country, and that had a direct effect on the economy. And so they spend more and more money to keep people inside, 
in the East German example, they spent vast, vast sums. And it did initially have a, a beneficial effect on the economy. After 1961, when the Berlin Wall goes up and the fortifications across the whole border are made much, much stronger, the economy picks up hugely um, because people have no alternative but to stay. The number of people escaping goes down from hundreds of thousands a year in the 1950s to just a few thousand who managed to make it through or across or over the sea. Um, the, the border uh, actually in East Germany required assistance from the West. They they bought some of the barbed wire um, and some of the stainless steel from West Germany and from the UK. So um, they they required hard currency for their border and, and they allotted huge numbers of huge amounts of money each year to its upkeep. I think you said you were going to mention something about Yugoslavia. Sorry, I did, yes. So Yugoslavia was different. It had quite an unpleasant border with the West, with Italy um, and Greece in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And then from the mid-50s onwards, uh, Yugoslavia took a different path, as, as many of your listeners may know. It, it continued to be a socialist country, but it tried to have better ties with the West and, and actually fell out quite badly with first Stalin's Soviet Union and then never really recovered its relationship with um, subsequent Soviet leaders. So um, Yugoslavia allowed some people to leave under certain conditions to go and work as gas arbeiter in West Germany um, and other countries and also to travel. And so suddenly that took the heat out of the frontier because you weren't trying to keep all your people in. You were prepared for them to go and they knew if they went, they could come back. And in fact, they could send money back. So what you see there is that the border becomes less of a hotspot after the mid-1950s, and there are permissible routes to cross it. And so that just takes a lot of the heat out of the situation. Now, it, it's not to say that it wasn't an Iron Curtain frontier, the kind of the most, one of the most uh, ridiculous and also moving places I visited is the kind of twin cities of Gorizia in Italy and Nova Gorizia in Slovenia today, which was built in Yugoslavia at the end of the 1940s. The Iron Curtain there ran right through the middle of the railway square. So you came out of the front door of the railway station, looked across the square, quite a small square, and you were in Yugoslavia. There was a breeze block and barbed wire fence running right through the middle of the square and the buildings on the other side were in Italy. Still to come on the History Extra podcast... The pan-European picnic went ahead, so there were Hungarians and Austrians having buns and sandwiches and um, saying cheers to each other for kind of meeting up after all these decades. And then simultaneously, there were East Germans breaking for freedom and bounding across the field. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. 
that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's let's think a little bit about the the journey you took because that's obviously a really interesting element of your book, I suppose. How far did you find the Iron Curtain is still physically extant? And we're going to talk about whether it's mentally extant as well in a second. But but physically, what remains exist of the Iron Curtain? There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot dotted around in different places to different degrees, and then there are lots of other places where you would never know it had been there. Um, I think probably the best place to see what it kind of really felt like is is the border with Russia, between Norway and Finland and Russia, where it wasn't particularly uh, elaborate or enormous, the border fortifications, but um, they're still there, largely unchanged, have been slightly strengthened of late, And you still get somehow that feeling of doom or fear as you as you approach it. You have the sense that you are doing something momentous in managing to get in and out of Russia. And obviously that's become much harder even since I did the journey. But I've spent a lot of my life studying Russia and I've always had that feeling of I've achieved something by getting in. I hope I can get out. I've achieved something by getting out. And and so the physical infrastructure really contributes to that. I think. In Germany, they have a great tradition of running excellent memorials and museums. And so where they have decided to preserve the border, like the enormous uh, road checkpoint at Helmstedt Marienborn in the middle of Germany, you can really understand how it operated because they have preserved all of the apparatus and then they take you on tours or show you exactly how it operated. In other places, the border today is a green belt. And that's how you know that you're in the border zone, because at the collapse of the Iron Curtain, first of all, East Germany, and then states right the way from the north to the south of Europe, supported by the EU, have sought to protect this corridor, which was, for obvious reasons, not built on, not developed, didn't have industry in it, because it was out of bounds. Interestingly, East Germany existed for around a year after the communist regime collapsed there, and it had one set of free elections. So its parliament sat and was able to actually decide laws for a short time in 1990. And the last 
ever law passed was to turn the area of the Death Strip and the Out of Bounds area into Greenbelt, into a national park. And then mentally then, so you, as you travelled down, you met lots of people, you talked to people who had experience of, uh, of, of living through the Iron Curse and you met, met people whose, whose memories extended back that far. What, what sort of attitudes did you find? Look, people everywhere in Europe today are mostly living modern European lives. You know, they have Western cars, um, no more Trabants and uh, Jigulis and Ladas. Um, they have smartphones, um, irrespective almost of age group. Um, but when you get below that level, you find that a lot of older generations in the East are hankering for some aspects of their youth. That's not unusual, but in their case, when they look back, they see that through the lens sometimes of the regime that collapsed when they were younger, um, perhaps of the industry that collapsed and they lost their jobs, um, perhaps of the poverty that they lived through in the 1990s and the uncertainty, perhaps of the increased inequality in their societies, because all of these societies in the East, whatever else they were, they were hugely equal. The gap between the richest and the poorest was very narrow compared to what it is, um, what it was in the West and compared to what it is in all of these societies today. And so some people look at that and feel nostalgic or nostalgic, as you can say, nostalgie, um, uh, for kind of aspects of their lost youth in a way that's not very political. But other people have developed it into a kind of political ideology that really we need to get back to where we were. I think an important specific uh, version of this has developed in Russia, and that's because... Moscow and Russia really ruled the roost in the Eastern Bloc from 1945. And so when uh, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 and all of the subsequent steps through to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russians, yes, they were being liberated and getting, they hoped, a democratic system and access to capitalist wealth and consumerism, but they were losing an empire. And it's difficult to lose an empire is one of the things that I really learned as I went down through Europe and especially as I interviewed Russians both inside Russia and also in the Baltic states and elsewhere. Uh, that feels like a massive change downwards in your fortunes as a people. They can't understand the lack of gratitude from all of the countries that they sat in for so long. They feel they liberated them from the Nazis. And so that sense of a grievance um, really has rankled for lots of older Russians and some younger ones too. Just thinking about that a bit more, I wonder if we could dwell a little on on the uh, on the moments when the the curtain finally fell, when it when it started to to fall apart. Did you see much evidence as you were as you were travelling down of of how people responded to the final episode, to to the sense that it might come down? Uh, maybe this is a chance to talk about the Pan European picnic. Yeah, the Pan European picnic is is an amazing event, an amazing curiosity, I think, of, of 1989. So in August 1989, uh, just a few months before the Berlin Wall fell, several other Eastern European countries had already been reaching out in different ways to liberalise their regimes, copying Gorbachev, really, uh, in the Soviet Union, having their own kind of perestroika and glasnost and trying to make friends with the Western countries that ran up uh, to their borders. 
Hungary and Austria had gone further than most. And in Hungary and Austria, you could already move from east to west quite freely. But of course, the Iron Curtain border was still there. The Hungarians and Austrians in this little part of Austria and Hungary on the border in the countryside, they agreed they were going to have a picnic in August uh, 1989 where locals would come and uh, there would be a ceremonial cutting of the barbed wire fence. And then they would each be able to go across and eat food in the other's country, in the other's village, really, for the first time. This got known about much more widely because East Germans still couldn't travel west at all, really. And lots of East Germans had come on their holidays to Hungary that summer and were looking for ways to escape. That was a kind of typical East German holiday-type activity throughout the 1970s and 1980s, trying to escape on your holidays, where it might be easier than in East Germany itself. The German-language invitation to the pan-European picnic got circulated among East German communities in Hungary on their holidays. And suddenly, on the day of the picnic itself, instead of having, you know, a couple of hundred people from the locality, thousands turned up on the Hungarian side, mostly East Germans, and started marching on the barbed wire fence. And before the ceremonial opening at 3pm that that, that day, um, some of them broke through and ran into the Austrian side and escaped. And it was a really interesting moment because the pan-European picnic went ahead. So there were Hungarians and Austrians having buns and sandwiches and um, saying cheers to each other for kind of meeting up after all these decades. And then simultaneously, there were East Germans breaking for freedom and bounding across the field. And one of the lovely moments, there's so many lovely moments in 1989, one of the lovely moments was the Hungarian chief of police in the area, who had was offering security at the event, was still under formal instructions to shoot East Germans who tried to escape because East Berlin had imposed that on other socialist countries. And he had a real quandary about what to do that day, and he decided not to shoot and just to count the number who left. And that was a real, I think, moment when you see how the mindsets, the training that these people have had over decades suddenly counted for less than their sense of common humanity and their sense that the regimes they'd grown up in were redundant. They had nothing to offer anymore. And just thinking about um, escapes, we haven't really talked about that much in this conversation and picking up specifically what you just said about common humanity. So your journey, I think, led you to have some interesting reflections about attitudes to refugees, escapees and, and, and refugees, and, and how, how people thought about people leaving the East um, during the Cold War and how people think about people coming to, to the West today from, from other countries. Do you want to just dwell on that for a second? Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. I think about it a lot at the moment as well as we kind of consider movements of people across Europe and into the UK again. I guess the big point that I would make that I think I realised is the more you understand about an individual's story and the, and the more you're able to see them as an individual, uh, the more likely you are to welcome them when they escape to your country. And so what you found in the Cold War, as the border got fiercer and larger and more impassable, and the numbers of people coming through were smaller, literally individual families managing to get through by hiding themselves in bits of cars or, or individual young men stealing a pedalo from a Polish beach and using it to get all the way 60 miles across to the Danish island of Bornholm. When it's an individual you're faced with, they tend to be welcomed. In fact, in Cold War times, they were even celebrated often because it, it was a kind of victory for the West against the East. 
at an earlier stage when you had much larger numbers of Germans fleeing east at the end of the war and then in the early years of East Germany to West Germany, those people tended not to be welcomed because they were seen as a drain on resources, they were seen as a group who could change the culture of a town or a city or a village. And and what I saw when I was um, on the North Macedonian border with Greece, so the old Iron Curtain border between Greece and Yugoslavia, when I visited a refugee camp, um, was that really some of that sense of being inundated and having to stop an interminable flow of refugees um, is what you see again um, in Europe in the last decade. Um, and, and actually, there is effectively uh, an East German-style stainless steel mesh iron curtain fence between North Macedonia and Greece today, and it was erected to stop people from outside Europe from proceeding northwards out of Greece and into the rest of Europe back in 2015. Um, And I also, I guess, just one extra thing on that. Um, When I was on the border leaving Greece and going into North Macedonia and had to, I was on a bus and had to produce my passport along with all the other passengers, the 16 or 17 of us on the bus had to wait for almost two hours while a black man on the bus had his documents queried um, and was taken off the bus, made to answer questions and eventually was arrested. And I realised how even though we were all on the same journey, he was in such a different, separate place from the rest of us. We were bystanders. We felt powerless, but also people on the bus started to get irritated about being delayed, whereas for him, he had just failed, perhaps for the umpteenth time, in trying to get to a country that he wanted to live in and that he would feel safe living in. And I felt that kind of, though we were physically very close to one another on the bus, that there were really oceans between us in terms of our position in the world. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a powerful thought. Just sort of getting to a conclusion, I wonder, sort of on that same vein, as as I said at the start of the conversation, you did this journey in 2019. Obviously, this year, 2022, we've seen the invasion of, of Ukraine change the situation completely um, in, in many respects. How does that change the way the, the Iron Curtain might be viewed now by the peoples that, that you know, if you'd done this journey three years later, obviously that would have come with lots of different challenges. Would you, have, would you have had a completely different experience, do you imagine? In terms of doing this journey, and I hope some people who read the book will go back and go to some of the places that they haven't been to before because they've read about them in the book, um, I would have struggled more during the pandemic. So the pandemic changed far more about travel along the old Iron Curtain border than the current Russian war in Ukraine has done. Um, I couldn't have made that journey at all, jumping across borders, even in the Schengen zone, for most of the last two and a half years. I think I could just about do it now. And the only exception is that I couldn't go into Russia. It would be very hard Um I'd find it hard ethically to go in for something as kind of fripperous as as, as writing a book about the Iron Curtain, um, but also it would be quite difficult to get the visas and and to cross that border. So, I think really the the Iron Curtain has been re-emphasised enormously in the far north, so where Russia runs up against Norway and Finland. And in fact, Finland is finally to be a member of NATO, having never dared to join, having in fact been banned from joining. Um, by Moscow when Moscow made peace deal with Helsinki in the 1950s. Um, So that border will become more of a true Iron Curtain border in a way in the 2020s than it was um, up to the 1980s. 
In terms of what we might see um, happening uh, further east in the areas of Ukraine that have been occupied, I think there are analogies that you can use from uh, East Germany, West Germany. One could see certain conclusions to the war between Russia and Ukraine, where some parts of Ukraine remain permanently occupied and are perhaps reformulated as some kind of East Ukraine, though at the moment it seems that Putin wants to keep them fully within Russia. The big difference, however, I think it is a big difference. Russia was selling, the Soviet Union was selling an ideology um, to other countries uh, in the 1940s and, and afterwards, and saying that this was a route to a happy life, to a, to a utopia, to, to, to a socialist paradise. And actually, there were lots of people in all of those countries who subscribed to that hope, even if they didn't necessarily support everything that the regimes did. Beyond Russian nationalism, I don't think there's very much that President Putin is selling by way of a happy future to any of these countries. So really, it's in some ways... There are analogies, but in other ways, this is a much more traditional imperial exercise than um, the uh, Cold War was. Mm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. We've covered a lot of ground geographically and chronologically. <laughs> yes. um, we haven't talked very much about your experience in in the South, and that's possibly one of the more surprising aspects of the book. We might need to to leave listeners to 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 enjoy that if they if they go and have a read of the book. But I wonder, in conclusion, is obviously I could have asked you many more questions. Is there any questions you think I should have asked you? Any final comments that you'd really like to make that you'd like listeners to be aware of? Well, maybe we could touch on Nechichivan. I mean, when I got to the end of the journey, I I had done lots of research to go on the trip. I had carefully plotted my journey, but I was still brought up short by what I found in this part of Azerbaijan, Nechichivan. Uh, quite simply, the only reference point I had was what I had seen in documentaries about North Korea. This is a pristine... Uh, kind of Switzerland of the South with no rubbish anywhere, no people visible on the streets most of the day, um, and very, very few shops of any kind. And basically it is run as a kind of personality cult of the family of the rulers of Azerbaijan, the Aliyevs, who come from that part of Azerbaijan. There was a real sense of tension in the air throughout my stay there. I found it very difficult to get anyone to talk to me, which was a very common experience in the Cold War when Westerners went east. It was very hard to get people to be brave enough to be seen speaking to you. That was really the only place where I felt that in the air. And I remember so clearly as I left to go back into Turkey and then fly home, how on the, in the minibus from the city to the border, Everybody apart from the border guards sat silently, so all the local people who were travelling into Turkey. And I thought this was just more of the same. And then as soon as we all made it through the checkpoint, the same people were chatting loudly, um, demonstratively, getting ready to sell their wares at market. And that really showed to me oppression at work, how they feel oppressed in the society that they live in. So that was quite a stark reminder of one of the aspects of the Cold War and the Eastern Bloc that I hadn't expected to find still in existence anywhere. That was Timothy Phillips, The Curtain and the Wall, A Modern Journey Along Europe's Cold War Border, is available now in the UK. It's released in the US in March under the title Retracing the Iron Curtain. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>